0: For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What works must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for this glorious morning where we can gather as your people, as the saints of God who have been called out, those who have been reconciled by the work of Christ and have been made your children. Lord, we have the privilege to gather and set our eyes upon you to sing the truth of who you are and what you have done and to hear from your word the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. God, I pray that as we look into this passage and we are faced with the realities of unbelieving hearts, the depravity of humanity, that you would help us to remember how great your grace truly is in every one of our lives. Father, you have done great work in every life here who believes. Let us not forget that it is all of grace for the reason which we are here. I pray that that would become all the more clear as we look at this passage today. So, Lord, speak through your word. We ask that you would be working in the hearts of your people. And for those who don't know you, Lord, I ask that you would grant them sight, that they may see Jesus and come to him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back with you again. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in our congregation. I'm pretty sure your numbers have multiplied over the last year. There has been lots and lots of babies born in our midst over the past year, and there are, in fact, uh, more pregnant ladies among us than I can even count, so we're expecting a lot more. God has been kind to our congregation. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Mothers, I want to again publicly thank you this year for the role that you play out on a daily basis as a mother. Your, your role is, is more significant than this world or the devil would ever want you to believe that it is. And it's easy to lose sight of that in the midst of the, of the mundane. It's easy to lose sight of that in the voices of this culture disparaging your role. But remember that you are actually carrying out one of the most significant entrustments that God has ever given to mankind. Yours is a high and holy calling. And God has given mothers, in particular, a very unique influence into the lives of our children. Since I get to hear about and read your testimony as more people join the church, I can tell you that it is often, it is with frequency, that someone mentions their mother, in particular, as someone who played a key role in their coming to Christ. A mother's faith and a mother's influence is a powerful thing. We actually, we actually see this in Scripture. Uh, Paul, when he's writing his last known letter before his death, he's writing to his protege Timothy, uh, w- the one who is probably the most dear to his heart in all the world. And he said to this to him in Second Timothy chapter one, he said, "I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother." Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Timothy's faith was a, a heritage passed down from his mother. His mother's impact on him was an eternal one. And his mother was impacted by her mother. This was generational faith witnessed in the life of Timothy. And mothers, don't, don't underestimate the power of, of what you are doing, the power of your role. Your role is a gift from God that is meant to be employed for His kingdom so that you too can pass down a heritage of faith. So your, your perseverance, your exhaustion, your prayers, your constant love, it is, it is all worth it. It's all worth it. So keep pressing on, sisters. Keep pressing on rearing your children in the service of Christ. Thank you for what you do. Well, today as we continue on in our study of the Gospel of John, we have come to a passage that reminds us of how much every single soul is in need of divine grace. It is a passage that serves as a a sharp and clear illustration of the depths of human depravity and the spiritual blindness that every soul has outside of Christ. Now, that might not sound like the most encouraging topic for Mother's Day. Indeed, it is not, but it is a relevant topic. Because the truth is, for for every person that we hope to see come to Christ, including our children, we have to come to grips with the human condition outside of Christ. When you understand that rightly, when you understand human depravity rightly, then you understand that there is something more that is needed than just a transfer of information. There is something more than is needed than just a persuasion of the will. Now, of, of course, we want to give information. We, we actually, we must give information. We ought to do everything we can to show them Christ, to teach the Scriptures, and to assure they are well acquainted with the Gospel. But as we will see today, that alone is simply not enough. Without the, the power of God, they will never see. Every human is born spiritually blind. And the truth is, you you can set a beautiful painting before a blind man, you can describe its intricacies, you can describe its details, its beautiful contrasts, its colors, but unless he has eyes to see, he still cannot see. The, the true glory of the painting he will never know because he is blind. And the same is true on a spiritual level for every single person who has ever lived. Blind. Utterly blind. Therefore, for those who we want to see come to Christ, we we must tell them the truth, absolutely, but we ought to go beyond that. and We ought to beseech God to open their eyes, that they may see and behold and believe the truth, that we are telling them. Because apart from grace, it matters not how much one knows. It only matters what they actually see and actually believe. That's true for our children. That's true for anyone. And we're going to see just exactly how true that is in this text today. Today we're going to pick up right where we left off in verse 30, and we're going to work to verse 36. And we're going to see two things taking place here, kind of back and forth, as we just walk through this dialogue between Christ and the crowd. We're going to see the demands of unbelief, the persistence of unbelief in the people, and in the midst of that going on, we see it taking place in the midst of clear declarations of truth from Christ. Now, the hard reality is, in the face of absolute truth, with all of the evidence necessary, the human heart still will not believe, not on its own. If ever there was an illustration for total depravity or total inability, this is, this is it. The spiritual depths of depravity are beyond often what we even think. But my hope for us as we look at this, is that we would be reminded both of the, the greatness of God's grace in our lives, for, thus of, for those of us who actually believe the gospel, and we would be reminded of the extent of the need of God's grace in the lives of those who have not yet believed. You cannot understand either of those things if you don't understand depravity. But depravity, rightly understood, magnifies the grace of God in the gospel. It is the black backdrop from which the grace of God shines forth. So let's, let's look at this. Let's, let's continue on in this passage and let's start with the, the, these demands of unbelief from this people. Look at verse 30. It says So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, obviously, we're picking up right in the middle of this dialogue, this back and forth between Jesus and the crowd. So we we need to remind ourselves of of how we got to this point. As a reminder, John chapter 6 is meant to be taken as a complete unit. This all happened within two subsequent days. And it began with Jesus performing a sign. The sign of the, the feeding of the five thousand through the miraculous multiplication of the fish and the loaves, a sign that was meant to demonstrate who Christ is and the spiritual sustenance that is found in him, the spiritual life that is found in him. However, the crowd only saw this as a only saw him as a as a miracle worker, and they sought to use him for their own political. Agenda. They wanted to take him by force and force him to be king. And for that reason, Jesus had withdrawn from them. And overnight, he had crossed the Sea of Galilee by foot, unbeknownst to the crowd, walking on water, revealing more of his glory to his disciples alone. The next day, the day after the miraculous feeding, is where we are now. And Jesus has re-engaged this crowd after they crossed the sea to try to find Him. And last week, we looked at the beginning of this. It all started off with a confrontation from Christ. Jesus called out their true motives for following Him, which essentially boiled down to the fact that they were living for the temporal. They were following Him because Jesus had given them some bread. They had eaten their fill. They were not after the eternal. They were not after Christ for who He was. They just wanted more of the temporal. They were false followers of Christ. So, of course, Jesus, in grace and mercy, tells them not to work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give them. And in response, they wanted to know what works are required of them. What, what works must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus replies to them with a singular work that is no work at all, which we looked at in verse 29. Look what he says. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. See, Jesus is just repeatedly trying to get it through to this crowd, both... Through, who he, through His signs and, and through His teaching, who He is. That He is the center of eternal life. That He is the one whom, to whom they should be looking. Faith in Him, belief in Him, is everything. It is what this is all about. And that's what He's been showing them. That's what He's been teaching them. And remember, this crowd has actually not just seen one sign from Christ. Uh, They did see that sign with their own eyes. They even tasted of it to their satisfaction. They ate the miraculous bread. But even before that, Jesus had been performing many signs in Galilee, opening blind eyes and deaf ears, healing the sick and casting out demons. All of this was going on in his, his Galilean ministry up to this point, which was the very reason that they had chased him to the other side of the lake in the first place. But now, knowing all of that, having seen all of that, having that context, look again at what our text says, at how they respond to his admonition to believe in him as the one sent from God. Look at verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? That we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Now, this is this is simply baffling at this point. it's, It's so baffling that I even read one commentator try to make a case that this has to be a different crowd. This can't be the same people, surely. But I assure you that it is not a different crowd. It is the same crowd. It's not possible for this to be a different crowd because of what Jesus said in verse 26. You're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus addressed the same crowd. This is, in fact, the same people who less than 24 hours prior watched Christ multiply the fish in the loaves and ate up to 20,000 of them from five barley loaves and two fish. They watched it. They partook in it. So then the question is, why are they asking him for a sign? Did they not just see one? Had they not seen many before that? Why are they asking him for a sign? Well, there's two things that you need to understand about this demand, this request for a sign. One is that this was a cultural and religious issue for the Jews. This was very typical in Judaism. In Judaism, a sign from heaven was seen as the highest form of validation. Heavenly truth must be validated by heavenly power. And when it came to their anticipated Messiah, there was much anticipation around that, that He would come performing signs greater than anything that had been done before. And this is why this is a repeated theme all through the gospel, the demand for signs. They were constantly asking Jesus for signs. They were obsessed with signs. And though they had seen many signs, they were never satisfied with the signs that Christ had done. Paul even addresses this in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. He said, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. You see, in the Jewish mind, God would be displayed through power, not, not through weakness. This is why the cross would become such a stumbling block to them. Our God is a God of power, not of, of weakness. Our Messiah is going to come in power, not in weakness. They did not have a category for a Messiah who would die on a cross because of this. Their obsession with power. The Jewish expectation for the Messiah was that He would be one who rises to power and one who displays power, signs of power. And because of that, the second thing you need to understand about this demand is that this was not asked in good faith. This this was not asked from a posture of belief, a posture of of, of desire for belief. And now many will come to Jesus throughout the Gospels and ask Him to do something because they believe He can do it. Like like the Roman centurion who said, Lord, if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. He was not asking for proof of who Jesus was or, or what He could do. He already believed. He was asking Jesus to do something he knew he could do. He believed he could do. And it actually says Jesus marveled at his faith as a result of that. But that's not at all what's going on here. This was actually a social and a public challenge. Yes, they were were initially excited about what Jesus could physically do for them, but they do not believe that he is who he says he is. And they are, they are not responding well to his rebuke. Now, this was more along the lines of, Okay, guy, you say you're the Son of Man come from God who can give eternal life? Prove it. Prove it. Show us what you can do. Now, this challenge is akin to what the Jews will say to him on the cross, using very similar language. They say this in Mark 15. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Same language. And actually, we've already seen this in the Gospel of John in the, when the Jewish leaders confronted him for his cleansing of the temple back in chapter 2. They said, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And neither of those instances was a good faith request coming from a desire to really believe the truth. And neither is this. This is actually a clear expression of unbelief coming from these Jews. Jesus had just claimed to be the Son of Man sent from God who can grant eternal life under the authority of the Father, and they do not believe Him. Not at all. Which will become more and more obvious as we move on in this discourse but here from this posture of unbelief they issue their public challenge show us a sign prove who you are and then they even bolster their challenge to him from the scriptures look at what they say Look back at the text then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you what work do you perform our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat they're now bolstering their challenge by comparing what Christ has done for them with what their ancestors, the children of Israel, experienced in the wilderness. They're throwing Scripture back in His face. This is actually a quote from Psalm 78, which is summarizing the events of Exodus 16. They're comparing Christ to Moses. Essentially saying that if he's claiming to be the one sent from God, the Messianic Son of Man, the prophet greater than Moses, then surely he can do greater signs than that which was given under Moses' leadership. The Israelites were fed continually, and they were fed from heaven. That's the emphasis here. Our ancestors got more meals, and they came from heaven. They came from above. You gave us one meal. And it came from below. It didn't come from heaven. So surely if you are who you say you are, surely you can outperform Moses. This is an absolute public challenge, using the scriptures to bolster it. It's just total unbelief. And though they had seen many signs, not just the one, Jesus even acknowledged that in verse 26. He used the plural. Not because of the signs are you following me. They had seen multiple, and still they were not satisfied. It was not enough. And more than that, they had the audacity to impose upon God what kind of sign it would take for them to believe. Now, we need to be careful here in our observations and our assessment of this situation. We need to be careful that we don't Look at this with our arms folded, sitting back, asking the question: what is wrong with those Jews? What is wrong with these people? Well, I can tell you exactly what's wrong with these people. They're just like you, they're just like me. They are part of the sinful human race. What you are witnessing here is not a Jewish problem. It's a human problem. What we are witnessing in this unfolding story is, in fact, the depths of human depravity. The extent of the spiritual blindness that has infected every human heart due to sin. It's it's easy to look at this passage and just be bewildered by it. With everything that they've seen, with the Christ standing right in front of them, explaining who He is It's easy to ask the question, are these people blind? The answer is yes. Yes, they are. They are absolutely blind. Unless you forget, so are you, before you came to Christ. They do not have ears to hear. They do not have eyes to see. They are spiritually deaf, and they are spiritually blind. And more than that, they are spiritually dead. That is the power and the effect of sin upon the human heart. Every human heart is born in the same place, denying its creator, unable to see the truth, and following in one's own sinful nature. And because of that, no matter how clear the truth is made, no matter who is presenting it, here it's Christ, the human heart is incapable of seeing and believing without God doing a work upon it. And that that gets even more clear as we move on here in Jesus' response. Let's look now at how Jesus responds to this. He's going to respond in, in two ways. First, he's going to issue a correction to their challenge from the Scripture. And then he's actually going to fulfill their request. Not in the way they wanted, but rather with a clear declaration of the truth. But first, let's look at this correction He issues. Look at verse 32. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In these two sentences, there's actually three corrections that Jesus makes about their understanding of things. First is with regard to who the giver of bread is. There was an obvious unspoken assumption that Jesus is correcting that it was by the power of Moses as their prophet, as their the redeemer of Israel that their ancestors were fed. But Jesus is making it clear it was not Moses who fed them, who gave them bread from heaven. It was God. It was. Yahweh, and the careful reader of Scripture, would know that. Moses merely announced what God was going to do. But it was God who rained down manna from heaven. And notice, Jesus lumps them in with their unbelieving ancestors. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. You, children of Israel, did not receive that from the hand of Moses, but from the hand of God. That means that Jesus is demonstrating and clarifying by these words that he has already done something more than Moses ever did. He has already done something than Moses could more than Moses could do. He had already fed them by miraculous means, feeding the 5000, supplying them with bread by his own creative power, showing him to be the source and showing him to be God. Because that is only a role that God could fulfill. Historically, it is only a role that God has fulfilled. The feeding of the 5,000 absolutely demonstrated that Jesus Christ is God, that he is the source. Moses never did anything of the sort because Moses could not do that. Now, the second correction is with the nature of the bread. The bread that was given in the wilderness is not the bread that Jesus has been telling them to labor after. They are still missing this. It is not the true bread that the Father gives that endures to eternal life. Remember what he said back in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. True bread is that which grants true life. The manna in the wilderness was actually not true bread. Not, a, not in this sense, not in the sense that Jesus is talking about. Yes, it came from heaven, but other than that, it was it was just like all other earthly bread that we consume. It was only enough to sustain temporal life. It was that which perishes, and it only sustains that which perishes. From an eternal perspective, it's not true bread. Because it was not that which can sustain true life. It was, however, meant to be a pointer. It was always meant to be a pointer. It pointed to the true bread that was to come. It foreshadowed the true bread that would come down from heaven. Which is what Jesus is talking about here. He says, But my Father gives you true bread from heaven. Notice that's in the present there. This is not about what happened in the past with Moses, nor is it about something that will happen in the future. Jesus is saying that the Father has now, at the present moment, provided true bread for this people from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This bread is is different. This bread does indeed come down from heaven like the manna, but it gives true life, eternal life, spiritual life. And it is here now at this moment for these people given by the Father. But notice what Jesus said. It's been provided not just to the children of Israel, but to the world. That's the the third correction here. The intended recipients of this bread are not just the children of Israel as these Jews supposed, but it's for the world. Remember when all this is going on. This is happening at the time of Passover, at the time when the Jewish nationalistic zeal was at its highest. They are looking for a new deliverer, a new redeemer for the nation of Israel. But yet, Jesus is here saying something a bit different. And this is a theme that we see all through the Gospel of John. We keep seeing this. He just keeps hitting on this. Back in chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Or John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Or John 4.42, We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And now here in John 6.33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See, God's God's plan of redemption certainly it began with the Jews. It came through the nation of Israel, but it's much bigger than the nation of Israel. And it has always been bigger than the nation of Israel. And the Jews, of all people, should have known this. God said from the beginning, that it would be through the offspring of Abraham that all of the nations would be blessed. And Jesus is here fulfilling that. He is the messianic provision. He is the bread that endures to eternal life, given by the Father for the entire world. And Jesus is just laying these truths out for this crowd Correcting their misunderstandings of Scripture, their misunderstanding of God's gifts, and their misunderstanding of God's plan. He's he's pointing them away from the temporal and to eternal things. There's eternal matters at hand, much bigger than your temporal need of food, physical provisions. But the spiritual dullness of these Jews just continues to prevail. When Jesus says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, in the original language, this can actually be taken two ways. It can actually be taken not as he who comes down from heaven, but that which comes down from heaven. The phraseology, the grammar could go either way. And it's clear that the Jews heard it in the latter, though he meant it in the former. Because look how they respond. They said to him in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. They still don't get it. They still don't understand that it's Him. They still don't understand that it's already been given. They still don't understand that it's here before them. This is not to be seen as some kind of humble request on their part. This is a demand based on their continued misunderstanding, their continued blindness. Now, some of your translations might have the word Lord there instead of Sir like if you have a New American Standard or a King James, that's because they do indeed use the word kurios here, which does mean Lord. But you need to know that kurios was also very commonly used as a simple, formal designation of address, much like we would use the word sir. It does not always convey lordship or one's confession that this is Lord with a capital L. It often simply just means sir. And for that reason, most of the translations have rightly rendered this as Sir, because we are not to confuse where this crowd is at at this point. They do not see Christ as Lord at all. They are simply saying Sir. In fact, they're actually using the exact same language as the woman at the well, before she believed. After Jesus explained what He was offering to her, that He was offering living water that would well up to eternal life, satisfying one's spiritual thirst forever, she said to Him in John 4, verse 15, Sir, give me this water. Why? So that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. At that moment, she clearly did not understand who He is, nor did she care about what He was Actually offering her. She could only think in, in natural terms. Well, the exact same thing is, is going on here. All right, you're, you're offering bread superior to the manna in the wilderness. Give it to us always. Their minds were still on the physical. They still want their carnal appetites satisfied they had still missed everything Christ had said. Christ said that the Father has presently supplied this bread, that it has already been given, but they have once again put their blindness on full display. Give it to us always. No, it's already been given. It's it's here now for the taking. But they don't see it. So Jesus is going to respond to them again. And this time, he's going to get extremely explicit. And in so doing, he's going to fulfill all of their requests. Look what he says verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He could not be more plain at this point. Their dullness required him to just be explicit. In my estimation, though, these are some of the most beautiful and gracious words that have ever been uttered. Jesus basically says, let let me spell it out for you. Let me make it plain. Let's remove all ambiguity and all doubt as to what I am saying. I am the bread of life. It's me. I'm the one I've been talking about the whole time. Everything he has done, everything he has said has been pointing to this truth. They wanted him to perform a sign. Certainly he doesn't give it to it in the way their unbelieving demands required of him. But he does give them a sign. He gives them the true explanation of the sign he had already performed. The sign that they saw and partook in. It all pointed to him. They demanded that that He give them this bread always. And here He is. I'm here. It's me. He is the fulfillment of all their requests. And unbeknownst to them, He is the fulfillment of all of their needs. There is nothing they need more than that which is standing in front of them at this very moment. I am the bread of life. Now this statement that Jesus makes is actually the first of seven significant statements that Jesus is going to make in the same format in the Gospel of John. They're known as the seven I am statements of Jesus. And every one of them begins with the same words, I am, ego, a, me. And they all have a predicate, meaning it's I am paired with a descriptor of who he is. If you remember, we discussed this, the words ego, a me, I am, are the very words of Yahweh in his self-revelation to Moses from the burning bush in the Exodus. When Moses asked God for his name, God replied with, I am. He is the great I am, the self-existent God. God. Now, Jesus uses these same words, and He uses the words ego eimi more than seven times throughout this gospel. We, we saw that uh, when He was walking on the water to His disciples, but seven times He formally uses them with a predicate, meaning I am something, and each time He is revealing Himself to be the one true God, the God of Israel, and each time He's revealing more and more of His character as God. Here's, here's the seven I am statements he makes in this gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. Each one of these statements, these I am states and statements, tells us more and more about who He is. And we're going to spend significant time exploring each one of those in depth as we come to them. But what is going on in each of these statements is God's character is being revealed through the Son. This is a fulfillment of what John said at the very beginning. John said in his prologue to this gospel, he set the stage for this in chapter 1. He said, No one has ever seen God The only God, speaking of the Son, who is at the Father's side has made Him known. So God, the Son, has made known God, the Father. God has now been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is the revelation of who God is. And here He says to this people, I am the bread of life. Now, what does that tell us about who he is? What does he mean by this? Now, obviously, this is metaphorical language, but the choice of his words are important. Bread bread is a universal food. Virtually every culture throughout history partakes in some form of bread as a staple, especially the Jews. Bread was central for them. This is why it's often used in Scripture to just speak of one's basic needs. Men shall not live by bread alone. Speaking of one's basic physical needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Speaking of one's basic needs. It's not always even necessarily speaking about literal bread, but particularly one's basic necessities in life. Bread is often just used as a universal representation for food in general, that which nourishes the body, that which sustains physical life. And in keeping with that metaphorical language, Jesus refers to Himself as the bread of life. And as He's already made plain, when He says life, He is not talking about physical, temporal life. He's talking about true life. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about life that is not passing away. And for that kind of life, the basic necessity of true life is Jesus Christ. It is Him. Just as you cannot physically live without food, you cannot live spiritually, eternally, without Christ. Without food, you have physical death. Without Christ, you have eternal death. Every soul's basic need is Jesus Christ. He is the only sustenance of every eternal soul by design. By God's design. This is how God created us as humans. Humanity was made for Christ. As Paul will say in Colossians 1, all things were created through Him and all things were created for Him. Every soul that has ever been created was created for Christ, designed to live for Christ, to be sustained by Christ, to feed off of Christ. The soul that is separated from Christ is dead, spiritually dead, and will be eternally dead lest they come to him. But the soul that has Christ is alive, eternally alive. That's why he is the bread of life. And this is why Jesus says what He says at the end of verse 35, Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. He's he's carrying on the metaphor and saying that the only way one's soul can ever be satisfied is to come to Him, to believe upon Him. notice, Notice the parallel nature of these phrases here. He's not saying anything different. He's just saying the same thing in a different way. What does it mean to come to Christ? It means to believe upon Him. What does it mean to believe upon Christ? It means to come to Him. He's saying the same thing. And He brings in the element of thirst to show the totality of the satisfaction that is found in Him. All of those who truly come to Him, who believe upon Him, will neither hunger nor thirst. For their souls will be satisfied to the uttermost in him. That is the truth of who Christ is. That is what the gospel is all about. That is what the good news of Jesus Christ is all about. That anyone who comes to Him will be saved and satisfied for eternity. Anyone who believes upon and trusts in His name will have their soul satisfied for all of eternity. This is why He came. This is why He died. So that we could be forgiven of our sins. So that our sins could be removed as a barrier between us and God. So that we could be reconciled to Him. So that we could come to Him. So that we could feast on the living bread for all of eternity. That's what we are made for. That's what His death opened up for us. And Christ is here with clarity, offering Himself to His own people freely they wanted a sign, He gave them a sign. And He explained it to them. They demanded bread from heaven, and He gave it to them. In this very moment, it's there. He is there for the taking, for whoever will partake. But the sad and shocking reality is in the face of this, in the face of this glorious and gracious offer, they still do not believe. It's devastating. The human heart is so dull. Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. This group had seen it all. They had seen the Christ, they had seen his miracles, they had seen the signs. They had eaten their fill. They had heard his teachings. They had heard his explanations. And yet they persisted in their unbelief. You know, there's only two things in all of Scripture that declare that as something that Jesus marveled at. Two times it says that Jesus marveled. One of them was with the Roman centurion. Jesus marveled at his faith. The other was in Mark chapter 6. and Jesus marveled at the unbelief of his own people. Those who had it all. Those who had the most access to the truth. The most access to what Christ was doing. The Jews, the covenant people. The ones who had seen the signs persisted in unbelief. And even Jesus marveled at the depths of human depravity. If there's anything that reveals how deceiving and devastating the effects of sin really are, this is it. The truth is, if you think for a second, this is why I I reject Arminian doctrine so Strongly. If you think for a second that you overcame the darkness of your heart by your own intellect or by your own moral decision, you do not understand the scripture. You do not understand the power of sin. You do not understand the depths of depravity. You can't overcome that in your own power, you can't overcome that with your own will. Human depravity, human sin is too powerful for any one of us. The question is, what do we do with this? What do we do with the doctrine of depravity, the reality of depravity? Why is it important that we keep this truth fresh in our minds, that we revisit these truths? Why does Paul bring it back up constantly in the book of Romans or the beginning of Ephesians? Why must we keep depravity before us. I'll give you two reasons. There's many, but I'm going to give you two, and it's the same two that we started with. First, it it reminds us of how much we are truly products of grace. As we will see next week, Jesus is going to make it explicitly clear that even our coming to Christ, even our faith is a gift of grace. God has done it all. The fact that you believe is a miracle. It's a miracle that you believe the gospel. And it's a miracle that you will be worshiping God for for all of eternity. Do not understand depravity is not only to misunderstand the truth of Scripture or the power of sin, it is to misunderstand God's grace. The depths of our depravity demonstrate the heights of God's grace. We must remember from where we have come. But secondly, closely related as to why we need to keep this truth fresh is it reminds us what we are facing in our witness to others. Whether we're talking about our own children or friends or loved ones or even just a stranger we meet on the street, we need to remember that if they are not in Christ, then they are blind and deaf. Because they are spiritually dead. Which means you ought to do more than just give them the facts. Certainly we can't do less than that. Because without the truth of the gospel, there is no hope. One must hear the truth. But we ought to give it to them bathed in prayer. Pleading with God to open their eyes. Because unless God does a work... It matters not how clear we are or how articulate we are or how persuasive we are. God must do it. No heart will ever believe without the power of His grace at work. We cannot operate in our own strength in this thing. We must lean upon Him. Being Mother's Day, I'm reminded of a vivid Example of this, of both of these truths in history. And I'll I'll close with this story. In the 18th century, there was a young mother who had only one son. Her husband did not know Christ, and he was a pretty absent father. He was away at work a lot. He was a sailor. But she knew the Lord. And she sought to raise her only child in the Lord, teaching him the gospel. Teaching him theology, teaching him the scriptures, catechizing him, taking him to church, and modeling the patience and love of Christ in her son's life. But more than that, she was a woman who diligently prayed for her son's soul, beseeching God for his soul. Sadly, this godly woman died at a very young age, twenty-seven. Her son was only seven years old at the the time. But the truth had been sown, and the prayers had been prayed. Sadly, this young man grew up to be a great sinner. He rebelled against God. He rebelled against the truth that he was taught by his mother, and he was actually a quite despicable human being. He participated in the slave trade, and he participated in many atrocities against humanity. He was a sailor himself taking after his father, and even other sailors thought low of him. That says a lot. Some of you may know at this point, the man I am referring to is none other than the great John Newton. At a point when he almost died at sea, the truths he had known from childhood came rushing back to him, And he was convicted of his sin against God, his standing before God, and by grace from the gospel that was already sown into his life, he turned from his sinful ways and found forgiveness in Christ. John Newton would go on to be a very effective pastor after this, and he would pen one of the greatest hymns of all time, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. It was sovereign grace that opened his eyes, and he knew it. But as he looked back, he also knew that the, the key instrument of grace in his life was his mom. His mom's instruction and his mom's prayers. Later in his life, he actually reflected, and he said this. He said, My dear mother, besides the rain she took with me, often commended me with many prayers and tears to God. And I doubt not, but I reap the fruits of these prayers to this hour. Brothers and sisters, if we hope to see God's work in the lives of others, whether they be our children or anyone else, we must pray for God's power. We must see our utter dependence upon Him and lean on Him through prayer. Depravity absolutely demands our dependence upon God. Only He has the power to open eyes and to grant life. But it is often, often through the prayers of His people that God is pleased May we as Faith Community Church become a praying church, a church who prays for the lost, prays for God to act, to bring souls to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who saves We thank you that you are the God of all grace. We thank you that you did not leave us in the mire of our own sin to chase after the sin that we preferred outside of Christ. But in sovereign mercy you've come and you've opened our eyes to see Christ and you are still opening eyes to this day to see and behold his glory and believe upon his name. God, we ask that you would continue to do that in our lives. We ask that you would do that with our children. Lord, we ask and I pray for the little ones in this room, for the efforts of their parents. Lord, I pray that they would be fruitful by your power, by your grace. That the children in this room would be a great harvest for your kingdom. And that our efforts with our coworkers and our friends and our family members who are lost would be blessed of you, would come with power, would have the grace of God upon them. Lord, would you use us as instruments of your grace and mercy in the lives of others. Help us to see your power at work through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that we have received grace, and we pray that we would be conduits of grace. Thank you for your mercy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.